Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Today, we're delighted to have Dr. Alex Kahana with us. Alex operates on the intersection of healthcare and Web3. He brings over 25 years in clinical practice, 15 years in medtech, and six years in blockchain technology. So this will be a very interesting episode. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It's good to see you, and good morning from New York City. Yeah, hi Alex. Thanks for thanks for joining us on the show. We've been wanting to get this organized for a while. You know, um, we had Heather on the podcast before, and she obviously spoke very highly of you. First things first, though, Alex, how are you today? How, how's things with you? Excellent. It's the start of a new day, and um, looking forward of uh, changing the world. Awesome. That's very that's very very noble aim. I'm, I'm sure everyone will will be glad to hear that. So. Alex, can you give us, I know you've got a really storied history. You've got so much experience in a number of different fields. Can you just give us a brief overview of your background and explain what led you to Web3? Uh, thank you. It's a very polite way of saying that I'm old, but that's that's good. <laughs> my moniker and medium, I say I live the four lives in one, which means not only that I am of age, but also that I know the dirty little secrets of each life. <laughs> I would say that, you know, I'm a physician by training, a pain physician which means that I've seen all the, I want to say, failures or lack of successes in the healthcare system. And I've been fortunate to build uh, almost half a dozen pain centers around the world. Um, so that means not only do I speak uh, multiple languages, but I'm quite familiar with the global health industry. I've always been interested in technology integration in the clinical workflow and try to understand how can that improve the patient-physician dyad, which led me to understanding systems thinking. As a pain doctor, I've been exposed to the opioid epidemic. So this is the man-made greatest manufactured epidemic that we've created in modern medicine. And so I've not only understood the federal alphabet soup, but also understand how systems work and systems thinking to solve these problems. And then in my recent now 10 years into the foray of Web3, since we can't say the B word anymore in the United States. Yeah, it's been interesting. It's been a journey. And one has to be humble to just follow what the, the universe is telling you. Yeah, I've had that story from a lot of people, right? Web3 has been around for kind of you know, really 10, 10 or so years now in, in various forms. And as you say, it's, it's moved on from just being a, a Bitcoin type thing and blockchain. Now it's a whole suite of different technologies, right? What was the allure of the Web3 world to you, having been a physician, having worked in, in the healthcare industry? Was there a specific kind of point of interest in Web3 where you thought, oh, that that's definitely the path I need to go down to build on my experience and solve those challenges you saw? Well, I think uh, it's a great question. I think there are two things that really happened. One is that it was thrusted upon us I'm from the generation of being analog, where we'd write medical records and with pen and a pencil on a piece of paper, and we were convinced that's bad for patients. And so we were sold this idea that by digitizing electronic health records or introducing technology in the clinical uh, 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 workflow, then suddenly things will be great. Outcomes will be great. I think that the motto was right patient, right time, right treatment, whatever, and that couldn't be anything far from true, that it distanced us from our, I want to say, work of being a doctor. We were less doctoring and more kind of engaging with the computer. And all this culminated in the second part, which is COVID. And it really proved that whatever this is, it's not working. And that our inability to trust each other, this erosion of cooperation, coordination, it just was so self-evident that we just failed. We failed on many different levels, but mostly technology wasn't there for us. So there had to be a real, I want to say, deep dive into thinking, okay, what needs to change? Try to understand what is Web3? And I think that, and we'll talk about it, it has in it features that are supposed to make us more resilient, I would say, to future challenges such as COVID-19. And when you talk about, well, when most people talk about Web3, one of the, the follow-up terms tends to be data and how we use data, ownership of data, all these kind of things. And you talked about your specific background and the idea of digitizing health records. And I saw in some of your blogs and some of the, the interviews you'd done that you used this term datafication. 
Could you explain what datification is? Yeah, first of all, it's not a term that I invented, unfortunately, because it's a really good term. But I would say that it's different than digitalization. Uh, like I said, I lived through this era where we moved from analog to digital. And that's fine. It, it created this world that we live in where we interface with a world that is not tangible. The computer, if you wish, the web is kind of like that barrier between the physical and that digital. And data is that currency, if you wish. And I use currency here, not in the financial analog, but in the way we use in electricity, where it just moves from uh, one place to another. And we use this data to allow us to do things in a way that is more, I want to say, sufficient, convenient, uh, better outcomes. Again, a promise of a, a better life. Datification specifically pertains to, I want to say, two aspects. Uh, one is to treat data as an extension of you. And I think that people don't think of it that way. They say, okay, data is this thing that is out there that may be the bedrock of knowledge or information, knowledge, wisdom in, in that pyramid that we tend to talk about. But if you think about it differently, especially now with all the sensors that are capturing what we're doing, you understand that I am my actions. And these actions are captured by data. And so when third parties use it, lose it, or abuse it, they take a piece of me. So this is not some theoretical or cold asset that just lives out there in the universe, but really it is a part of me. And it represents, to a large extent, my dignity. And so when we talk about security or privacy in depth or privacy by design technologies, we're actually talking about dignity-preserving technologies. And I'm not sure that we always understand that importance or give that importance when we build things. The mm -hmm. second part of that efficacy, of course, is data as an asset. And this is pertaining to those most of the modern world still lives in a capitalistic or what we call a free market. I say still because, and I believe this even more so with the LLMs and the chatter GPTs that are coming out, that we will arrive to a moment that might be a post-monetary world. But until that happens, I think that the data that we create has value. And so there's this kind of like flow back going back to energy between the data producers and the data consumers, someone who creates that knowledge and someone who wants that knowledge. And right now, the world that we live in is a world of data asymmetry. I know something that you don't know, so you're going to want to talk to me and pay me buckets of gold to hear what I have to say. But mm -hmm. also data illiquidity, because I might say, I don't want to tell you all the fun stuff. I don't want to tell you the secret sauce unless you pay me. So this whole approach uh, of um, adding, a, a, I want to say, uh, a dimension to capitalism, where before we're talking about dollars, and now we can replace the word dollars with data. So mm. it's this kind of new byproduct of a web that is more fidgetal. It's not that web that, okay, I'm here, the digital is there, and there's no interface we upload and download. Yeah, it's better than web one when we just looked at it and I said, why am I using it? Now we use immersive technologies I'm in it, I own parts of it, or the hope is that I will own parts of it, but it's clear that it's datification is something that is part and parcel of the evolution or the hybridization of the f physical and the digital. Yeah, wow. That's a really incredible exp explanation. One thing that stuck with me there is the idea of data being an, an extension of you. And I think that's both something that's being enabled with the technological developments, but it also seems like it's a philosophical kind of mental uh, advancement that is happening in a lot of ways. And I think that directly aligns with the Web3 vision as well. But uh, how do you think that all these Web3 advancements are actually enabling this datification that you're talking about? First of all, to, to your point, it is philosophical. In, in philosophy, this is called the extended mind. And all what it says is that my mind doesn't sit just in my head. 
And so, you know, as a doctor, for example, if I have a patient with Alzheimer and I give them post-its and they go through their home and they say, okay, open the door, turn on the light, da, 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 you know, that's mm -hmm. their extended mind. You know, if I take away those post-its, they won't be able to function. Or if mm -hmm. I lose my phone, I will literally lose my mind because there's data in it. There's information in it, be it with photos mm -hmm. or notes or things that I've taken that are very difficult to retrieve otherwise. Mm -hmm. So, so you are right by announcing that the, it is a philosophical approach. I think that um, what is interesting about this uh, movement into uh, this datafication world or this Web3 world and acknowledging the digital is that we're starting to think about, okay, how do we work in a dyad with mm -hmm. machines or with artificial intelligence, which has just boomed in the last 12 to 18 months? There's not a day that goes by that we don't read, you know, some drama, AI drama related between AI optimism or techno optimism or AI doomerism. And I always say, and I apologize for those in the audience who've heard that already, I am not worried about artificial intelligence. What I'm worried about is natural stupidity. So <laughs> I, I think that there are limitations to what AI can and will do. It'll always be a dyad with us. Not because I don't think that computation-wise, the power is endless, but I also remind people that our ability to think about things is also end endless. And so when people think about the end of knowledge, there's two ways to look at it. One is to say, okay, I'm learning about data and that data creates knowledge. What's the end of it? What's the point? The point is to understand how the universe works. And that's the end of knowledge. That's what we've been doing all the time. But then if you have a certain way of looking at the world, you say the world is like this, and it doesn't matter to what uh, imaginary friend you, you believe in, then you ignore other parts of reality. And this mm. is where we live right now, where we're ignoring stuff. And mm. we become incurious. And so when you ignore something, you introduce ignorance. And you become ignorant. And that is the end as terms of the terminus, the finish mm -hmm. of knowledge. And so AI will be only as good as we can understand it. And uh, I think that a lot of the AI doomerism, you know, is connected to as children, uh, what we've seen in science fiction or what we've read or our thoughts about it. And I think that it's, again, if we understand or, or embrace the extended mind theory, then this can only make us better creatures, this machine-human dyad. And I don't want to go too far in saying, okay, I've been a pain doctor, and a lot of it is understanding emotions and, and behavior and psychology. Will there be psychologists of machines or, or, or people who are working with machines? Probably people say, I hate my computer or I hate my uh, AI assistant. What will I do with it? Oh, it's about time to finish this marriage and go to a, <laughs> another version. But then, of mm -hmm. course, you might find two AIs, you know, anthropomorphic AIs or robots sitting in your office and complaining about their pain and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I'm not mm -hmm. trying to be glib, but what I'm trying to say is that imagination is infinite. And that is really the mm -hmm. only thing. That, that limits us. I'm glad we're going down the rabbit hole so early in this episode. It feels like we've <laughs> gone straight for the deep conceptual stuff. And it's super interesting that you call out AI so early, right? When we're talking about Web3, I think we tend to think about it as this convergence of lots of different technologies like AI, blockchain, lots of privacy preserving technologies as well, which are obviously super relevant in, in the healthcare space. Another kind of broad point on, on Web3, and I've seen you mention this, I think it was in your, your UN General Assembly panel, you mentioned actually web 2.75 right and me and alex sometimes do talk about two, web 2.5 as a bridge between the two so i was interested well, what do you mean by 2.75 are you saying we're a little bit further ahead or well, which parts of web 3 is it blockchain ai which bits of it are getting closer to realizing this web 3 dream in your mind well obviously the 2.75 was just a hook and to create that <laughs> uh, that interest because I knew that you'd at some point ask me this question, but <laughs> it's really to your point, the, mm -hmm. the progression of our immersion into that. Because if you think about it, and then I'll talk a little bit about the love-hate relationship between AI and blockchain, is that if you look at the number that we append after the word web, okay, saying that web would be that 
border or that boundary between the physical and the digital, then basically that number only represents our proximity to it. So <laughs> one, we're just looking at it and I'm like, why the hell am I looking at a computer that looks exactly like the New York Times? I'll just read the New York Times. And I love the ink that is left on my fingers and I love the smell of paper. <laughs> Web mm. what we're doing now is, yeah, I can upload, I can download, I can say stuff. Sure, it's not mine. I'm making someone rich, but it's surely not me. Mm -hmm. And then Web3, thanks to uh, uh, the, this stack that you're talking about, AI, which is like accelerated intelligence, if you wish, and blockchain, which I call the software to the social solution of trust. So I can say that it's a trustworthy intelligence that I'm enhanced with. For example, privacy, knowing that there are things that can be dignity preserving technologies. And it could be IoT with sensors. So it also talks to what I'm doing with machines and so forth. A web three is that digital I'm in and out. So I, one can imagine that web four with brain computer interfaces is I'm in the internet, I'm totally immersed. I don't know if that's my thoughts mm -hmm. now. I can think about something and it goes back to me. So, wow, I am in the internet. And then web five would be, okay, I am the internet a la matrix. You know, I'm finally in Keanu Reeves. So the point being is that uh, I think that we are now uh, immersing more and more into the world, into the environment, into, if you wish, the phenomenological world around us. And when I say phenomenological, I mean that the world, what it means to me. And that's really what's important is that, and especially for someone who works so many years in pain, is that there's this first person voice that science has neglected for a couple of centuries. That if it can't be measured, if it can't be observed, if it can't be, you know, uh, uh, in an experiment, it's not real. And I beg to differ. If I think about a pink elephant, even if pink elephants don't exist, it is something that I'm thinking about. So how do you quantify it? How do you represent it? Do I say, you know, put a prompt now in mid journey and suddenly I see it and then the world can see it and the world can understand my thoughts or is it mm -hmm. just signals that come in with MRI and say, oh, I know what he's thinking about. So, so, <laughs> so the point is that we're now able to go into what I would call the transparent brain. to start mm -hmm. to really understand our thoughts, our, our, our private voices and not just this observing operational psychology of, oh, I'm looking at you and you all, Alec, you look to me quite depressed. And you're like, why would you say that? I'm a doctor and I can tell that the way you're frowning, that's totally, uh, it's not. <laughs> now, love-hate relationship between AI and blockchain is very interesting because when people ask me, what is the killer app for blockchain? I say, it's AI, finally, <laughs> because everybody loves AI but everybody also understands the power of it. And so they say, okay, I, I don't like this black box. I don't like this. Oh, you think that, because it's exactly that point. What does it mean that it thinks? It went through some unknown database that looked at some type of bias and on its way it's hallucinating. And now it's telling me what I'm supposed to do. Doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so blockchain, which is the single source of truth, which enforces in the transparency, which is security, censorship, collusion resistant. That really mm. creates a very powerful stack of saying, yeah, I think I can deal with more fire, more computational power and mm. still remain human. Wow. There's a lot there that I want to unpack. I think one of the terms that I've said to see that you've used there a few times and is, is becoming quite prominent in the space is the idea of these digitals, right? The concept of bridging the digital and physical world with the idea of creating more I know, interactive user experiences, right? And I think something that I, I read quite recently, which really resonated well with me, I think we've discussed on the podcast, is the idea that the digital world right now in web one, web two, it's all about convenience, right? I will use it for the convenience of being able to speak to someone or interact with someone around the world. But that is to the detriment of immersive experiences and the emotional and empathetic experiences. And I've seen, it seems like you're saying this as well, that as we're pushing towards this Web3, maybe even Web4 paradigm, that we'll start to have the convenience of digital, but also the ability to communicate emotion, to empathize. And I imagine that must be very relevant to your work as a clinical practitioner, because that's so much of it, right? The human experience, but being able to do that with the convenience of digital must be a powerful thing for the future. 
It is, it is. And I think that, you know, I've been very fortunate to work in the field of pain because pain is something that's not tangible mm. and carries with it stigma. And the saying we used to say is the only pain that's easy to treat is the pain of others. You can look at someone that looks completely fine and they say, I, I can't live. It's, it's just, and you're in your head, you're just making this up. Mm. And I can do the other way around. I can see someone's totally broken into pieces and I say, how are you? And I say, I'm fine. So there's this thing called phantom limping, where you can lose an arm or a hand or a foot, and you feel pain in a limb that doesn't exist. Now, we can talk about the biology of how that happens, what are the changes or the scars that happen in the central nervous system that can cause that. I think that's less interesting. I think that what really is interesting is that in that sense, the brain doesn't need a body to feel things. You know, if you just take my brain, put it in a, in a jar and connect it to a mouth, I'll be very good complaining about stuff. So I think that the fidgetal kind of alleviates that, I want to say, dependence on the stuff, on the material, mm -hmm. which has profound impact of how we behave with each other, about this materialism that we live in. Oh, I have to have stuff. Because if I don't have stuff, if I don't hold a stock certificate, if I can't touch this house, this is the chair. Oh, I have a bag, an expensive bag or some shoes or sneakers. And that's why it's so interesting when I, was, when I meet young, yeah. serious gamers. I love that. It's a game I always thought as a kid, the game is fun. Oh, this is serious gaming. Mm. It's really that they value the digital, the imaginary, the untangible, the first voice, what it means mm -hmm. to me. Then the stuff that is around us. Yeah. And so I think that it will just make us better people because we are now transforming from a world of commodities, a world of stuff, which is a mindset of scarcity. And our whole economics mm -hmm. is built on scarcity. It's all built on supply demand mm -hmm. and the price pressures on that supply demand. And it creates all these perversions of, on one hand, you have, I'm in New York here. So on one side of the street, I have homeless people piling up on top of each other. And on the other side of the street, I have all these mansions and all these expensive buildings that are empty, owned by mm -hmm. Russian oligarchs or the, the ultra-rich from the UAE and China. Because we're all tied into this these rules of materialism. And so AI, and to that extent, also allows us not only to do things better, bigger, chocolatier, more convenient, ooh, I can make a little bit more profit, mm -hmm. but also AI pays attention to us, what we say, what yeah. we do, and, and is a mirror to who we are. It can be a tool and say, oh my God, do I sound like that? <laughs> Am I that biased? Do I have those mm -hmm. huge blind spots out there? So if anything, I find that all these technology developments that we're doing are giving us not only an opportunity to reflect on what the hell are we doing here, but also an opportunity to improve ourselves as a species and our relationship with our planet. Because as a doctor, and I say this many times, you can't seriously talk about mental health and physical health and planet health without talking about financial health which drives the way we interact with each other. I mean, your passion for this topic is infectious. I think me and Jack have spoken about this as well. You know, the idea of capitalism, consumerism, constant more and more. It's not sustainable in a lot of ways. And the episode we did on the metaverse, I've seen a lot of people and they're saying, well, the metaverse is a way for people to have constant increase in what they own and ownership and demand and supply and all this kind of stuff without necessarily affecting the environment, producing mass amounts of material. And there's this whole idea of capitalism now moving into the metaverse and all this kind of stuff to, to maintain that relationship. And it's very easy to think far ahead in the future. But what does that future look like where we're all in the metaverse? There's AI everywhere. AI is commercing and all this kind of stuff. But the wealth of experience you have right now in the clinical sector, what are the, the problems you see right now in Web2 centralized healthcare? Well, before I answer that, because you said something so important, I want to just underline that so the audience will, will, will really appreciate what you said. And I saw that when I was this year in the Amazon, you know, and I was just with indigenous tribes and, and they helped me understand that consumption is destruction. 
because mm-hmm. when the hunter I was with this tribe that of course I didn't interact with them because they didn't want me to infect them because I'm the one that carries COVID but I observed them and the hunter would bring exactly what the group needed they would bring too much it's not helpful it just rots it just ruins the planet it's like why why the hell would you do that and so you understand that is the importance of responsible production and responsible mm-hmm. consumption and respect the balance of the ecosystem that you're creating. And the word economy, by the way, economica from Greek means maintain your house, keep your house in order. And if mm-hmm. you have too much stuff, you start to hoard. And so all these multimillionaires and multi-billionaires, what are they? They're just hoarders. They're just hoarding colored paper money, which right now is supposed to be the consensus of value that has mm-hmm. pictures of kings, queens, slave owners, and colonizers on it. They're supposed to represent something. And to your point, Alec, is to say, no, there are other ways to value who we are as people that are non-monetary. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's so interesting. And to answer, what are the applications of these to your question? And I'll answer about healthcare, but in general, if you look at AI, okay, what is AI going to do? It's going AI doesn't do anything. It's what we do as humans with AI that makes a difference. So imagine mm-hmm. that I'm the boss of a small business. And let's say for the sake of conversation, it costs me $100 to maintain it a year. Mm-hmm. And I made $200. So with $100, I pay the wages and the leases and the amortization and whatnot. And I made a profit of 100. It's good. Mm-hmm. Now, Jack comes to me and says, Alex, Dr. Kahana, I have this AI thingamajingi and everything will cost 50. So what does capitalism dictate me to do? What am I supposed to do according to capitalism? So I can say, well, it's only cost me $50. I'll just fire half the people and make a hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's not what, that's not Adamsonian capitalism. That's not what it says there. That's a moral decision mm-hmm. that I took as, a, as an owner. Because what I could have said was, that's great news. So what I'll do yeah. is that morning shifts will be human and afternoon shifts will be robots. And still people will maintain their jobs. And I'll make a hundred. Now, why is that important? Because in scenario one, now I'm a worker that says, oh, AI is terrible. It took my job. And the other, I'm like, AI is amazing because now I can go home, be with the family, pursue my interests, mm-hmm. play the piano, paint pictures, code, for example, mm-hmm. maybe come up with better ideas for my company, maybe build a competitive company that will make it even better in the field. So in that sense, capitalism is amoral. It doesn't care what we do moral-wise. It's human beings that make that different. Yeah, that really resonates with me because it sounds, I've heard this kind of idea espoused by people like Naval Ravikant, right? Talking about the kind of the utopia we could be going towards with AI, whereby the menial tasks are all being moved away from humanity so we don't have to spend our time doing that and instead we can focus on the more meaningful things right creative things spending time with people and lots of people lots of people are worried on the other side of this is going to take my job but then you have the whole universal basic income argument so well, why, why do we have the jobs in the first place it's just to, for sustenance so it's yeah it's i think it's really useful to know the kind of very broad brushstrokes vision for these technologies right especially ai as you've talked about and then there are also looking kind of to the nearer future. I see so many areas, right? Just even we're from the UK, we use the NHS. There are so many inefficiencies where the other aspects of Web3 as well, not just AI, but things like blockchain as well, certification, all these other auxiliary technologies in Web3 that can aid processes, make things more efficient, help us share data more easily, right? Because whenever we have to change our GP, sometimes the, the data is, is physical still and it goes and gets mailed across and it can take a long time. One, one of the things you mentioned earlier was about the opioid crisis in particular as well. And this is something I came across a number of years ago in thinking about this from a blockchain perspective, right? Because my understanding was there were really pharmacies 
were really struggling with the lack of real-time data, right? People could effectively, in some cases, cross state lines and get over-prescribed drugs by going from one state to the next, or one pharmacy didn't know that he'd been had this prescription filled at another. So it seems obvious to me that there's a link here between healthcare and datification, how we manage data more effectively, how we process it in real time, how you can use blockchain to safeguard it. But I'm, I'd be keen to hear what do you think are the main kind of applications in healthcare is specifically for this kind of tech? Yeah, no, th- th- these are great remarks and implied from your question is really a very interesting comparison of saying the NHS, which is a centralized model, it's not going pretty well. And, and in the US, which is a totally combination of centralized and decentralized elements is not working also because of all the friction and capital leakage and intermediaries that are in it. And so what gives? And obviously we can talk about the use cases of it, like to your point, supply chain. Okay. Where are the ventilators? Where are the masks? Where are the sanitizer gel for my hands? And I don't know what. We can talk about certification. How do I really know that I'm a doctor and not just saying that I'm a doctor because I look like one. We can talk about clinical trial management, decentralized and really decentralized, not how it's called today, which basically means remote and virtual. I'm saying about how the data architecture is built in such a way that it's self-sovereign and all all the things that we talk about, transparency and, and trust and tokenization. We can talk about electronic health records, which is difficult to apply because we live in a technological oligarchy or oligopoly. In the U.S., there are over 1,200 electronic health records, but five are holding 80% of it. So, you know, the rest, the rest, uh, 1,245 are competing on a sliver of, of, of the marketplace. And we can talk about how do we aggregate as individuals and DAOs and what is decentralized science and all those things. Before we dive into each example, and you can ask me questions about it, I do want to point out that healthcare is not broken. It Mm -hmm. is doing exactly what it is designed to do. But if I use blockchain parlance, it's that it is designed to trade in death coins. Because if I get healthy, then I don't have business. Every time I would treat a patient and they would be better, my CFO would look at me or my administrator and say, ugh, it was just an opportunity of of, of $100,000 just went out the door. Because we could have done physical therapy and we could have done drugs and we could have done injections and we could have a whole bunch of stuff on them. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. There's no health. Why did you just give them the counseling, the meditation, the good food, the sleep hygiene, the spiritual support? Now he's lost. And that was a good paying right. customer, not, not a poor customer that we had to do. Chari- so, so it is doing what is it is designed like Web2, and that is to extract exploit and exclude. So the question here is not so much what are the use cases in healthcare, which I mentioned and we can talk about, but it's really about what is value? What is valuable? And the problem is that anybody who did Econ 101 or 102 understands that value is Q divided by C, quality divided by cost. Hmm. The problem with that equation is twofold. One is that Quality is something very subjective. What is a quality for one is not for the other. So a patient wants a million dollar pill, that's quality. But the NHS, you know, director says that's rubbish. Why would I want a million dollar pill? Now I can't treat a million people. And when you put cost in the denominator, then what you're implying is that it's all about cost suppression. Let's do more with less. And you reduce that number so much that at the end you divide it by zero and then it's not only practically undoable, it's also mathematically undefined. So (laughs) what is the equation of value? What should Mm -hmm. be the equation of value? Then I would argue that the fact that you want to put in the denominator what you want to get is meaningless. I want to get a lot of stuff. I want to get a lot of money. I want to get stuff for free. I want to get a, a, a whole bunch of things that will make me feel good. Sure, why not? If you live in a country that can provide that to you, good for you. The question is what's on the numerator? And that is, what are you willing to give? And that's the whole point of Web3, this responsabilization. Say, sure, you want ownership, but what are you willing to give? What is your engagement? What is your contribution? What are you contributing to the DAO? How are you 
adding quality to the metaverse? How are you adding quality to the planet? What is the network effect or the ripple effect of what you do that has value? And so you're saying, I'm talking to Alex and it's valuable because what he does makes people think and creates mm -hmm. these new ideas and all that. And it can be quantified and it can be mm -hmm. computerized. And it could, I could, we could imagine, uh, you know, having a, a, a computer vision on this and it's, you know, recording all the oohs and ahs of people who are listening to it. And every time I say something great and Alec goes like this, it's like, oh, wow, he liked it. Okay, good. I got on my phone a couple of pings and I made a lot of money. Can't do that. We have the technology. So I think that the reason I am not just saying, okay, Web3 is good, you know, for supply chain, value chain, clinical trials, credentialing, DAOs, unions, electronic, it's because we heard that already. And, and it's not getting adopted. And it's not getting adopted because the system doesn't want it to get adopted. Why doesn't the system get adopted? Because it lives in a commodity economics of scarcity instead of a digital economy of abundance. Well, this is reminding me a little bit of, I think, Bitcoin itself, right? To use the B word, because the whole paradigm shift we talk about in Web3 is essentially realigning incentives, right? It's ironic because a lot of people think Bitcoin is valuable because it's scarce. And I think it's actually much more than that. I think it's more about the economic incentive model behind how it works, right? You're taking traditional payment systems where you have an incumbent who's extracting value from the system, exactly how you describe the healthcare system, right? And, and Web2, and it's moving to a more competitive open system where people are competing essentially to provide value to people and an actual value that they see. So I think there's a nice... There's a nice parallel there that between the philosophy of Web3, you know, we've gone back to philosophy and I appreciate that because we can often, we, we harp on about use cases quite a lot, right? But I think it is important to, to touch on the fundamental values of why we're talking about it. I, I think, and again, the reason why I want to step back and ask the why, because we all the time ask about the what and the when and the how, is because it stretches our mind a little bit. It mm. doesn't have to be like this. It wasn't always like this. And uh, I, I think that, you know, Bitcoin for that matter, I think it will, all what it uh, offers is this public infrastructure of exchange of value that right now, the only one that does it is cash. And so, yeah, there's gold, digital gold and store of value and all these secondaries in this, but really what it created is that I can give to you X and you know that I am me, and I know that I am you, and there's very minimal capital leakage in between. Mm. And it's 24-7, and it's good for the unbanked and underbanked and for those who don't have a, 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 don't have voices and, and that are, are, are in existential conditions. I was in El Zonte in El Salvador when Bukele launched. And we can talk about, was it wise to do a Bitcoin and, or should have he done a stable coin or something else and blah, blah, blah. Nobody asks my opinion, so who cares? But that's not the point. The point is that I saw in my eyes a community of farmers that before that had to go with four hours on a bus to the capital to get to an ATM to fill duffel bags of paper money to go back and do their business and hope that on the way nobody's going to kill them. Mm -hmm. and, and instead you're saying, wait a second, this is 2023 or when I was in 2021. This is like, this is insane. And so why can't we do it with our mobile phones, with our digital infrastructure? And that's really mm -hmm. what this is about. It is about like a country like El Salvador doesn't have to cough up $6 billion a year for fees to private banks mm -hmm. for remittances. I had to transfer a payment to Nairobi. And it's like, what? On $100, mm -hmm. I had to pay like $40 fees. So I don't care because I have enough, but 80% of the world doesn't make $20. So that's really the problem, the exploitation that the one uh, billion people are consuming the amount of the rest of the seven. Forget that yeah. it's not okay, it's just simply not sustainable. And so we have the imagination, we have the ability, we have everything necessary to make this more sustainable. Mm. And it really pertains to, at the end, to ask these philosophical questions of why is healthcare not working? Why is there such polarization and to the point that we can't sit and talk about stuff, let alone collaborate?
this resonates very well with me and I know it does with Jack as well. Like the reason we started this podcast is because we were talking about web three in the abstract in a lot of ways. We're like, okay, data ownership. And then I go to my mom or I go to my friends and say, web three is all about data ownership. And they're like, don't I own my data? What does data ownership really mean? And then you talk in the abstract again about the benefits, what it means people can't see it, you control it, all this kind of stuff. And my experience has been anyway with my friends and family is that they don't really care that much about that in, in the kind of the norm. What they care about is when they actually say tangible things that might misalign with some of the things you've said around, okay, if you own your data, you can monetize that data. You can see less ads. You can start to control your experience better. And that resonates a lot more with people. And that does fit into this idea of data for profit and commercialization, all this kind of stuff, which may misaligns with the end goal. But in the near term, I think that kind of stuff does push people in, in little baby steps towards this paradigm in the future where it's not necessarily always about consumerism and monetization but it's, it's tricky right you have to have these steps it's i've found my experience so far is when you're identifying the why i personally resonate with the big question stuff that we're talking about right now but then i think the general public in my experience is more about baby steps to get there and what that actually means tomorrow in practical terms and i would want to know more about what the, you've got to, i looked at your cv you have a lot of different projects going on right now. It'd really be interesting for me to know what do you think the big things are right now that you're working on to that end goal? So so I totally 100% agree with you on, on incrementalism, you know, and, and evolution versus let's torch everything and revolution. Mm -hmm. I think that people, especially if they are fatigued, have uh, very little capacity for these huge changes. And when I say fatigued, it doesn't have to be physical fatigue. It just could be being overwhelmed by the deluge of data, and, uh, cognitive overload. I want to say that the, there are many projects, and I'm always careful because I work with so many people. So I love everyone. All your stuff is, is, is equally interesting. I love chocolate and vanilla. But what I would say, it is the big projects that excite me the most because they contain in it room for all the other projects that I'm working on. And I think that the two most interesting for me is one, anything that pertains to DAOs. So on all the DAOs that I'm working in, understanding that Web3 is a social engineering tool. And I always say that when I go into the bookstore, if I see a blockchain or AI uh, book, if I see it in, in the technical sector, I'm like, okay. If I see it in the financial sector, I'm like, oh, but I want to see them in the philosophy social studies section mm. then i know now we're on a good on a good run so anything that is pertains to social engineering the way we interact with each other differently that is not only more sustainable and more logical but also more kind it's more gentle it's more respectful and, and less harsh the project that i'm enjoying most is building smart cities i work in a very large cohort of amazing people called symphony and we built smart cities around the world we actually were able to write the standards of smart cities for the ieee if you want to become a smart city open the standard and just do all those steps i'm actually going to travel to vanuatu in the pacific island and go to satoshi island which is a small island that where we're building this utopia where we're experimenting mm. this idea of how can we social engineer, engineer ourselves? What does electronic bartering looks like? What is a different type of economic models? How do we understand value and monies and mm. currencies differently while at the same time respect nature and respect indigenous knowledge? Mm. We have to try to figure out to do things differently uh, because there's just too many planet-scale challenges that we're dealing with right now that feel so overwhelming that we just disengage. And that's that mm. sense of isolationism that we see, especially among high-income countries and low-income countries. I don't like to use the word developed and developing because we're always developing towards something, and I don't like to use first and third world because it has this post-colonial tinge to it. I call them obese and lean economies. And there are, the obese economies are starting to understand that this is not healthy. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I could take Ozempic or whatnot and take a pill or an injection and get artificially slim, 
and create all kinds of shocks to the body. But it's really about how do we reorganize ourselves into that human exchange. And that's what I find the most interesting is that the resistance to blockchain, to crypto, mm-hmm. the resistance to AI is because it changes the way we interact with each other. It changes power. And people don't like it. People don't like it for different reasons. And there are two ways to deal with it. One is to just complain about it. And that I think is a very toxic way to, to approach it. And then there are ways to say, okay, can, how can we solve it? Now, whether these are tiny baby steps of optimization, could be. I would like to see it in my lifetime. So maybe I have a sense of, more sense of urgency than you guys have. <laughs> but I think that um, we really need to understand the why before mm-hmm. we start to jump into the how. And uh, I believe in our infinite capacity to imagine. I believe in our infinite capacity to love. I always say that life is simple. There, there are just three things, and that is love abundantly, live gently, and graciously leave things that weren't meant to be. And that we can easily move on and just imagine this better world. I like that a lot. I think one thing I was going to say, you were talking about all the problems in the world and the systemic and the huge, and so much of it is drawing up these arbitrary borders, governing them in a certain way and having government versus government, world versus world, obese versus lean, like you said. And individuals probably don't care so much. The people actually operating in those economies don't care. And at first I was like, okay, how does this fit in with Web3? How does this fit in with blockchain and all this kind of stuff? But that is the technological progression, right? When the whole point of Bitcoin and blockchain now was to move away from these isolated systems, open up, and not just for the wishy-washy, be transparent and all this kind of stuff. But it's all about being peer-to-peer to cut across these borders, to cut across these unnecessary intermediaries that are facilitating the bloat in a lot of ways and actually interact on a more individual-to-individual basis. And I don't know whether it will come from the technology first or whether it will come from the philosophical change first, but I do think that this is where Web3 is going and I hope that it's going to happen in our lifetime for sure. Yeah, and the way it will look like in this revolution or paradigm shift, to use to borrow Thomas Kuhn's expression, is we're going to create a new language. There's a whole bunch of words that we haven't used before. I'm not talking about Riz or things like that. I'm saying that there's all these new concepts. That, for example, we always talk about B2B and B2C and B2B2C. The economy at the end is going to be C to C to C to C economy. That we are going to, I'm the business, you know, my soulbound token, or I am the business of Alex because people want to work with me. They don't want to work with whatever brick and mortar I work at and I could care less of what's happening. And we can yeah. create this spontaneous emerging mini DAO or DAC or DAP, you know, decentralized autonomous project. Jack, Alec, and Alex are now on a mission doing a dap on untangling the wave. So uh, I think that what Web3 brings to us is that power of not a citizen-centric world, which turned out to be, you know, it sounded really nice. Oh, I'm going to do it. It's going to be user-centric, patient-centric, citizen-centric. Turned out to be paternalistic nonsense. I decided for you what you'd like. I decided for you how this should be. And instead, it's a citizen-driven world. I drive it. I take it to where I want. And we together in a peer-to-peer way or into a C2C economy define the future and create that regional economic activity. Yeah, I think that's that's a really powerful way to put it, I think saying that the individuals in the system are the driver right the active participant in this that's really making this happen and i'm glad you just said right at the end there peer-to-peer right because one way i often describe it is we're aiming for a peer-to-peer economy and i like that dovetailing with your definition c to c to c but it's not just it's every interaction between every pair of c's is the important thing now so yeah i i fully subscribe to that um dr katana it's been amazing to talk to you i've really enjoyed this episode to finish off, we've just got a couple of short kind of quick fire questions we like to ask everyone on the show to see, you know, how opinions change or how they differ over time. So I hope you'll I hope you'll uh, you know give us some really insightful ones here. I'm sure you will. 
So the first one we'd like to ask you, can you distill into just one sentence what Web3 is to you? I would say that Web3 is the toolbox that allows me to live in this digital world. Wow, beautiful. That, that was definitely the most brevity we've had, and I loved it. That was very powerful. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and the final question, Alex, is if you could choose anyone they can be with us today or from any time throughout history to sit down and talk about Web3 with, who would you pick and why? Well, you know, obviously you can tell that I love philosophy and I love philosophers. And there's this amazing philosopher called Emmanuel Levinas. He's a French philosopher. He lived from 1900 to 1996. So he actually exemplifies the 20th century. And his philosophical theme was our dependence on the other. We called it the phenomenology of the other. That when I say I'm responsible, it means like I'm the head honcho, I'm the boss, I'm everything. What he means is you're response-able. You're able to respond to the other. If you can't do that, you're not responsible. And RE means the other. So it's not about cognition. It's about recognition. It's not about flexion and praying, but it's reflection. It's not about our legions between us. It's about religion. It's the greater good and all that. And so he really created a whole ethical concept or construct that goes around our dependence on the other, that I am good only because you think that I am good. Doesn't mean anything that I think that I'm good. Mm. And as such, he was not enthused with all this technology. He saw what that technology did, of course, culminating in World War II, where science was recruited to destroy in the name of science. I think he would be very interested. He would be very surprised. He would be very intrigued by this. What is this Web3 technology that forces me to acknowledge the centricity of the other, to find the, if you wish, divinity in everybody, and that the universe and nature and the spirit speak through the other? And that is the fuel that fuels me every day because I just see the success of what we're doing through you. I like that. I think this has been a great opportunity. Me and Jack often talk philosophy and usually we have to dial it in, but this has been an incredible opportunity to actually go through that and really dive into it. It's been a lot of fun. I'm definitely going to check out um, the work of Emmanuel Levenas. Thanks for that recommendation. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Like I say, this has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you to those listening, wherever you may be. And join us next time as we untangle a little more of Web3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.